Welcome to Sci-Fi Connection. I'm your host, Ted Bailey, also known as Professor Ted. Welcome to the first ever podcast for Sci-Fi Connection. This podcast will be entitled, The Beginnings of Science Fiction. But first, a little bit about myself and why I started the podcast, Sci-Fi Connection. Again, my name is Ted Bailey, as I said, also known as Professor Ted. My Twitter is Professor Ted, at Professor Ted, to be exact. And of course, the brand new website for this is SciFiConnection.com. That's www.SciFiConnection.com. The Facebook is Facebook.com slash Podcast Command. Yes, that's Facebook.com slash podcast command. Now, I want everybody to email me. The temporary email at this point is sci-fi connection podcast at gmail.com. That's sci-fi connection podcast at gmail.com. Now, of course, the email will revert over to the domain, which is sci-fi connection.com in the near future. But for now, sci-fi connection podcast at gmail.com. Again, a little bit about myself. My name is Ted Bailey. I am a professional broadcaster on radio and television by background. And you may be wondering, why would a professional broadcaster start a podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. Podcasts are the wave of the future. Radio and television broadcasts have traditionally been local in nature, while podcasting has become more and more popular. Today, Millions of people are listening to podcasts daily. You know what I like about podcasts is the ability for interaction. As an audience, you can interact anytime that you want. You can download the podcast, you can listen, you can interact with the forums and continue threads anytime that you want. If you're just listening to a live broadcast, you can only interact at the time of the broadcast. Another thing I like about podcasts, of course, is the internet. You are broadcasting worldwide, so it gives you a diversity, an audience, and a number of reasons why people listen to podcasts more and more. You know, science fiction asks three major questions. Those questions are listed on the very homepage of SciFiConnection.com, and we'll discuss that when we come back. Sci-Fi Connection. Right after this. You know, I have found that science fiction readers are also aspiring science fiction writers. And I picked up a few writing tips over the years from some of my favorite authors, one of which is David Drake of the novel Redliners. If you haven't read that, pick it up as soon as you can. David Drake of Redliners. He said, Ted, where's your novel? Man, I've been waiting for that thing. And I said, David, I'm sorry, man. I just haven't finished it. He says, you know what your problem is, Ted? You write chapter one, and you keep editing and editing and editing it. He says, I'm going to give you some advice. When you start writing a book, start from the beginning and write all the way to the end. He says, it may take you a few weeks or whatever, but don't walk away for very long. He says, write the book in its entirety. Great advice from David Drake. 
Welcome back to Sci-Fi Connection. This is Professor Ted again, and right before the break, I ask you to look at the website. The website, uh, of course, SciFiConnection.com, has three questions on the homepage. Number one, who are we? Number two, where are we? And number three, where is everyone else? I believe that all science fiction today attempts to answer all of these three questions. For instance, question number one, who are we? A lot of science fiction today deals with the human body, the human brain. Are we durable enough to survive? Can we last long enough? What about our longevity, our ability to live long enough to endure everything that's going to happen to us in the future? So a lot of science fiction deals with the human itself and the condition that we are. That is, who are we? Question number two, where are we? Okay, well, it's kind of simple that the fact that we right now are on the earth, but a lot of science fiction today has to do with us elsewhere on space platforms, on Mars, on the moon, going at warp speed all over the universe somewhere other than where we are reading this book. And it's up to the science fiction writer to present to us in another universe that they develop, a believable universe that we can immerse ourselves into and live that dream of being somewhere else. And it is a dream. And that's what we want to think of. We want to think of, well, what's after this? We're here, but you know what? We see problems on the earth. We see pollution. We see population. We see all kinds of things that are threatening the human. What do we do about it? Well, it's pretty obvious. We're going to have to get off the earth and live somewhere else. So a lot of science fiction, and it's the responsibility, actually, I believe, of the science fiction writer to present that universe that we can immerse ourselves in, in pleasure, entertainment, but also information, taking it from the scientific perspective and showing us what is possible. Question number three, where is everyone else? You know, as a kid, I used to go out and look up into the sky and I would see the stars. And I asked my mother one time, I said, Mom, what are those really? And she said, you know, those are other worlds, son. And I said, well, are there people back out there, you know, looking back at me? And she goes, well, there very well could be. I used to take my flashlight outside and shine it toward the moon and hope that somebody could see me signaling. I used to flash on and off, on and off, on and off, and wave it back and forth and hope that I could get some sort of signal from the moon that, yes, they saw me and they were answering me in some form or fashion. Well, again, it's up to the science fiction writer to put that into perspective in a in a universe that we can immerse ourselves into and enjoy the dreams that we have of meeting someone else. Next, I'm going to talk about the big three writers that started it all right here. Sci-Fi Connection. Back after this. 
Now, we've been talking about the beginnings of science fiction, and there are three writers that emerge on the top. They are called the Big Three. They are as follows. Number one, Isaac Asimov. Number two, Robert Heinlein. And number three, Arthur C. Clarke. You may have heard of these if you were not into science fiction particularly or are a latecomer to science fiction. Let me describe Dr. Isaac Asimov was a Ph.D. originally from Russia, but was raised in New York City from the time he was very young. He had a Ph.D. in biochemistry and was a professor at Boston University. His passion, of course, was writing. No one to this day has written as many publications as Dr. Isaac Asimov. He was everywhere in the 60s and the 70s. He started writing in the 40s, and you may know him from the movie I, Robot. He wrote that original piece, and I have that book in my hand as we're speaking right now. This particular book was copywritten in 1950. It's all yellow. It's it's the paperback version, but it's really a great treasure to have. I'm afraid to read it too much. The pages will come flying out and fall over the floor. Some of the stories that he wrote were... I, Robot, of course, The Stars Like Dust, Pebble in the Sky, The Currents of Space, The Caves of Steel, many, many more. I, Robot, the movie, was taken from one chapter out of this book, and it was called Liar, interestingly enough. Now, I changed the big three, in my opinion, though, to one more person, you might even call it the Big Four. I add Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury wrote The Martian Chronicles. You may remember The Martian Chronicles. They had a little mini-series on television called The Martian Chronicles. That was Ray Bradbury's piece. Now, out of the three, or four in my particular case, Isaac Asimov was a real scientist. So he knew what he was talking about when he wrote science fiction. It came out of real science. Let's listen to what he had to say about his idea of writing science fiction. Here he is, Dr. Isaac Asimov. Okay, let's look at literature as a whole. Uh, fiction. Uh, just any kind of fiction. I think that serious fiction, fiction where the writer feels he's accomplishing something besides simply amusing people, but there's nothing wrong with simply amusing people. But if he thinks that he's doing something besides simply amusing people, what he's doing is holding up a mirror to the human species, making it possible for you to understand people better because you've read the, the uh, novel or the story, maybe making it possible for you to understand yourself better. This is an important thing. Now, science fiction <clears throat> uses a different, a different uh, method for doing this. It works up an artificial society, one which doesn't exist, one which may possibly exist in the future, but not necessarily. And it portrays events against the background of this society. Well, it's amusing, it's interesting, but in the hope that this will give a new way of looking at people, at looking at yourself, that you will see yourself seen against this strange society in ways you couldn't possibly see yourself seen against the present society. I don't claim that I succeed at this 
it seems to me that to do this properly takes a, a great man, you know, takes a guy on the level of, of, well, at least half of Shakespeare. And I don't come up there, but I try. And who knows, maybe once in a while I succeed a little bit, but I try. And that's why I write science fiction, because it's a way of writing fiction in a different style and enables me to make points I can't make otherwise. You're listening to the very first podcast of Sci-Fi Connection. London, Paris, and Vienna. Except to learn the old mysteries that modern science has not yet rediscovered. The natural magic modern psychology is beginning to understand and, well, magic that wouldn't seem so natural. I studied and learned for a purpose, my dear. All right, Lamont, I, I realize all that. But now, now the entire underworld has but one objective, to erase the shadow. And to me, that means... Until they know what the shadow is and who he is, what can they do? Great. Orson Welles doing the shadow all the way back in 1938. You know, he was famous, of course, for having broadcast the War of the Worlds to over a million people who became so scared to death that they actually thought that the aliens had actually landed and became quite hysterical. This well-known quote by the great Orson Welles, We're born alone, we live alone, we die alone. Only through our love and friendship can we create the illusion for the moment that we're not alone. If you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. Create your own visual style, let it be unique for yourself, and yet identifiable for others. The great Orson Welles. You know, comic books cannot be overlooked in the world of science fiction, and, of course, Sci-Fi Connection is integrally involved with comic books. As a matter of fact, we'll probably be doing some shows from some of the comic book stores and talking about how exactly that science fiction does fit into the world of comic books. As we think of comic books today, most people are thinking about the movies, and Marvel Comics is by far the largest in bringing their comic books to the screen so that everyone gets to participate whether or not they collect the comic books. But when we think of Marvel Comics, we, of course, think of the great Stan Lee, the inventor of Spider-Man, and many, many, if not most of the characters, including Iron Man. And when we think of science fiction, which one of the characters would you think is the more science-oriented? Well, obviously, Iron Man. Tony Stark. Tony Stark is an industrialist, but he's a scientist, and he invented the armor. I had the special privilege to interview the great Stan Lee just a few months ago, and I asked him which character he thought was the best developed, and he told me readily, he said, good question. He said, Iron Man, he actually felt was the best developed character that he invented over all of the years. He said, because it's more believable. The Tony Stark character, he felt, was a more realistic character outside of the normal superhero characters that he had been 
presenting to the people in the uh, comic books. And so he felt like that the Iron Man was actually more believable and a better character. It took him all those years to feel good about a character like that. We're going to keep our eye open on Iron Man. However, Brian Michael Bendis, who I hope to have on the show, has taken the place. He has taken the reins from Stan Lee and has been writing Spider-Man and Iron Man and uh, a series called Civil War. If you're not familiar with the Civil War series, pick it up. You can get it from the first book all the way to the ending book. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but I just can't help but believe that talking about Civil War has something to do with possibilities in the country that we are in right now. We we have our split in the country. Well, and here we have a split in the comic book characters. The superheroes are angry at each other. They're fighting each other. And there will be an end. Brian Mike Bendis has said, you know, there will be a definitive end to this. So as we pick up the comic books and look at the Civil War, look at what happens between Iron Man and his ex-girlfriend, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. You will be surprised, and you can't put it down. You're listening to Sci-Fi Connection, the beginning of science fiction. Here's a question for you. Out of the imagination of all those beginning writers, the top four, what has come out of those writings that we are using today? The answer? Robotics from Isaac Asimov. But next, the elevator to space from... Arthur C. Clark. Talk about that in just a minute. Sci-Fi Connection. Here's a question for you. Who in the literature world was known for dialogue? Who was the king of dialogue? The answer to that in just a moment. You know, when you write dialogue, it's probably one of the hardest things you could do in writing, period. And in fiction, it's difficult to make it interesting. You can get into a rut that says, Jane said, Dick said, so-and-so said, and it's difficult to put it on the page. You, You wonder where to put the quotations. Different writers are becoming more innovative with the way that they handle the quotations. Some are handling it one way, and some are handling it other It's a little uh, out of the norm, uh, according to grammatical techniques. But you know what? The language is changing, and that's something we're going to talk about a little bit later. But dialogue is probably the most difficult thing to master in writing science fiction. Well, the answer to the question is, who is the king of dialogue in literature? It's Mickey Spillane, the king of the detective story. He wrote Mike Hammer. And instead of going through long paragraphs of narration, Mickey simply tells the story with the conversation. This example is coming from probably the last book he wrote before he died. It's called Something's Down There. Sounds a little ominous, doesn't it? But it's still one of the masters of the detective mystery. Listen to this. He's a big one, mister, though. He's extinct, Billy. What's that mean? They don't make them anymore. They're all dead. How come you know them then? Fossil remains. What they find after they die. Dead sharks don't leave anything. Okay, smart guy, Hooker laughed. Everything's cartilage except the teeth. 
They find these big choppers and can figure out how big the fish was. Why did they die? I don't know, Mako said exasperatedly. Then how do you know they're all dead, sir? I read it in a book, Hooker told him. Notice the way Mickey handled the dialogue. He didn't say, he said, she said, etc., etc. He made it very, very interesting. And quite surprisingly, it's not difficult to follow. It's more like a conversation that you would carry on every day. So Mickey Spillane was not only gifted at writing, but the king of dialogue. Sci-Fi Connection, the beginnings of science fiction. Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke is best known for his movie and book of the same name, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, this answers the third question on the website, sci-ficonnection.com, and that is, where is everybody else? Well, in this book and movie, man discovers something from extraterrestrial, super-intelligent life that was left on the moon. But they have a very difficult time trying to figure out what it was, what it is, what's it supposed to do. Read the book, 2001, A Space Odyssey. The second thing that Arthur C. Clarke was known for is, where does man live if he can't reach the stars in time, but yet he has to move off the earth. Where does he live? Well, he wrote a book called Rendezvous with Rama, where he depicts a space platform, a spaceship kind of, where it's a big giant cylinder about half the diameter of the earth, where humanity could live on the inside of the cylinder as it spun and produced artificial gravity, and on the inside would have the artificial atmosphere. It was a phenomenal concept and quite boring if you're not into technical matters. But that answers the question of where are we? You know, where are we going to go after we leave the Earth? You know, we we can't spend all of our time sleeping and wait till we get to another planet. Uh, who knows how we're going to do that? But immediately, we could take kind of an arc kind of device. And that was depicted in Rendezvous with Rama. Now, probably the most important thing that Arthur C. Clarke talked about, it's the most talked about right now in the present day, and that is an elevator to space. You know, the Earth has a huge gravitational pull. As a matter of fact, in order to get outside of that gravitational pull, it takes a velocity of 11,000 miles per hour and a huge booster rocket to get it out there. Think of it, 11,000 miles per hour to get outside of the gravitational pull of the Earth. Well, now think about this. What if you didn't have to use a booster, but you could just take an elevator? Say, okay, fine, we'll get in the elevator. It zips us right up past the atmosphere and just outside the gravitational pull. Well, it's a great idea. Problem is, materials. There are no materials strong enough to build a structure of an elevator that would actually go all the way past the atmosphere. Until now. Recently, the discovery of something called nanotubes. Nanotubes is the strongest material on Earth. It is as strong as diamonds, 
and is only the width of a few atoms. For instance, if you built a nanotube only five atoms in diameter, it would be stronger than any of the steel cables from the Golden Gate Bridge. This kind of material, nanotube ropes, would be able to construct an elevator to space. Now, if we had an elevator to space, we could use it to go all the way up past the atmosphere and save some energy, don't use booster rockets, get up into space, and then carry, you know, carry the materials up into space and then build whatever we need to build in space. Now, when you think about it, isn't that how they built the Enterprise from Star Trek? They didn't build it on the Earth and fly it up into space. No, they built the Enterprise in space in a space dock. So, you see, Star Trek starts with the technology already in place where we could carry things up into space. Now, this is very important to our development. Arthur C. Clarke talked about this sort of thing way back in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. Nowadays, DARPA, Defense Area Research Projects, has been offering megabucks to corporations, institutions of all kinds to come up with the materials to actually do away with booster rockets and, and effectively build an elevator to space. Well, finally, we have come up with the idea through nanotube technology. Arthur C. Clarke goes to prove that science fiction eventually becomes science reality. So there we have it. Finally, the beginnings of science fiction. First, we had Isaac Asimov. He talked about robots. Then we had Robert Heinlein, who talked about the weaponry of space and starship troopers and things like that to help us fight and defend and have an exciting time in space. And then, of course, Ray Bradbury talked about civilizing Mars and also running into extraterrestrial life in one form or another. And finally, Arthur C. Clarke, who talks about the technology to a great extent and is actually the more practical of all of the other beginning writers. It just goes to show that the beginnings of science fiction, of modern, I'm going to say, science fiction, began in the 50s and has extended unto today. Now, we're going to be talking about modern writers in the future and how they have taken it a step farther, many leaps farther, and talked about where we're going, how we're going to do it. And it is phenomenal, the ideas and the imagination of the writers today of modern science fiction. It is a great time in our world for science fiction because of the universes that allow us to experience all that we can be. You know, there's another great science fiction writer that I haven't mentioned so far, and I know you're going to remember him, Philip K. Dick. He was known for the movie Blade Runner. His book was entitled, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Recommended and required reading for all you listeners right here on Sci-Fi Connection. 
Philip K. Dick, as an author, was talking to prospective science fiction writers such as yourself and me, and he said, you know, the problem about writing anything, and especially science fiction, is to develop a universe that's believable. He says, you sit there and you write this universe and you wake up the next morning and look at it and see if it's still believable. That's a difficult thing. But that's what science fiction does. It takes our minds and places us into a different world, a future world that is amazing. We are dreaming and still awake. We are alive today, but living in the future. It's up to you, the listener, the prospective science fiction writer, to build those universes of the future. Help us all to live, to dream, to invent, to mold our future. I'm Ted Bailey, and this is Sci-Fi Connection.